You are listening to National Security Law Today. Good morning. I'm Bill Banks, chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today's program is going to begin with a a panel on crisis preparedness and response. It's now my pleasure to uh, turn the program over to Paul Rosenzweig. Paul, take it away. Thanks a lot, Bill. It's really great to be here. I am pleased to be moderating a panel on crisis preparedness and response preparing for the unknown. Our panel today is about risk management and strategic planning, which are essential to any effort to protect and enhance national security. We've got to talk about everything from information sharing to the coordination of federal, state, and local responses and preparedness, as well as cross-cutting issues like information sharing, intelligence gathering, analysis and coordination, public-private coordination, essentially the whole nine yards. And at the bottom of all of that is good legal advice, or if you want to fail, bad legal advice. So uh, our, our, our goal today is to put everybody who's listening in a position to at least be able to spot some of the critical issues that are attending crisis management, preparedness, and response, and be in a position to advise your clients, advise your future clients about what is the right way to approach this set of issues, which are, in my opinion, A, some of the most important facing us, and B, some of the most ill-defined and floppiest, if you will. So let me start with you, Lisa. Give me a general description of crisis management and the response system in the state of Delaware. What are the components and groups of government and private sector actors who are engaged in crisis management? How do you engage with them? Great. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for the introduction. And good morning, everyone. So the state of Delaware has the Delaware Department of Safety and Homeland Security. And within that department is our Delaware Emergency Management Agency, DEMA. DEMA is responsible for carrying out emergency management across the state of Delaware. The powers for DEMA are laid out in the Delaware Code, and they have responsibility for our operations plan and also our operations center. They cooperate with the federal government, our federal partners, to implement programs that are needed here in Delaware for emergency management. They are also responsible to manage our state emergency fund, which is available for any natural or man-made disaster. And so, you know, I do think, uh, I think Paul mentioned it, it's so important to have a legal advisor or multiple legal advisors on your response teams to have an attorney to address, you know, what are the legal authorities that are at play? What are the liability concerns in preparation for an event, if you know it's going to happen, or during an event or incident once it occurs, to be there to negotiate contracts, and um, also to support personnel matters to ensure that operations can continue to be conducted and that they're conducted in accordance with both state and federal law. My job involves drafting command level documentation, official memos that are required, emergency orders and executive orders that are presented to our governor. That task itself has been just a huge one in the past year. Um, We've issued about 33 emergency orders related to the pandemic, first declaration of our state of emergency and 32 
uh, modifications to that state of emergency. So we have just been really busy on that. A uh, big one also is Freedom of Information Act requests. And those are information requests that come from the public, from the citizens of Delaware. Probably the last thing is sort of those post-incident legal proceedings to the extent that there was any harm, damage by the incident. Uh, you know, we are here to support DEMA and to represent them uh, and try to mitigate any potential liability that they might have. And then under our plan, we have at least 50 partners. Our plan is expandable and collapsible. It allows for us to respond based on the nature of the incident and who is involved um, and which partners we utilize will depend on the emergency or the crisis. And operationally speaking, Delaware has three counties. We're a very small state. Um, And so the three counties and also our city of Wilmington are four partners And then we have a federal partner in the form of a federal coordinating officer that comes from FEMA. The FCO's role really depends on the type of emergency. And right now, Delaware shares its FCO with the District of Columbia. So Um, that's sort of a brief summary of of our response system. At several points, you mentioned the connection uh, to the federal government. So I'm going to move it up a level to the feds now and Mm -hmm. look to you, Susan, and say, Give us a little bit of the structure there. Tell us about FEMA and the National Incident Management Structure or system called NIMS. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on this panel. I'm delighted to share, to be at the table with this group. I think the comment I'd like to make is that, you know, we all have a very clear sense of how our nation manages peace and prosecutes war through the Department of State and through the Department of Defense with the Commander-in-Chief in the White House. When it comes to crisis management across the panoply of what we think of as homeland security type events, and certainly for um, very demanding crises, it's a lot more difficult to get your arms around. You certainly can't do it in a quick phrase. We have to take into account the White House, including the National Security Council and the Homeland Security Council, Uh, the Domestic Policy Council, and all the overlapping elements of those councils when it comes to crisis management. We have the most familiar face of crisis response, which is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. The Department of Defense, which carries out an array of defense support to civilian authorities' missions. And finally, um, the Department of Homeland Security, which Congress established in 2003 after the 9-11 attacks. It houses both FEMA and the new Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Well, that's a nice lead-in, isn't it? Bob, you're kind of at the top of the authority food chain here. You're part of this. Tell us about CISA's role in crisis preparedness and response, and especially the role of the NRMC. What role do they play? What do you play? Sure, Paul. Great to be here on the panel and and participate in this discussion. And so the agency on a blue sky day describes ourselves as the nation's risk advisor, helping defend today and secure tomorrow in the context of critical infrastructure and federal networks with a heavy focus on cyber but really trying to assure the security resilience of infrastructure so that critical functions that we need as a country for national security, economic security, economic competitiveness are are up and running. 
So what, what we've done at the National Risk Management Center is defined as critical function. Worked with some of the folks that Susan was just talking about in terms of you know the complicated layer of, of how we collaborate across an interagency with industry. Define a set of 55 national critical functions that are the things infrastructure produces that the country relies on. They include things like generate electricity, operate core communications networks, operate elements of the wholesale payment system, ability of supply of potable water, but also things like protect intellectual property and, and conduct elections and do identity management. So these are critical things that, that as a country we want to function. My job most of the time is to help build structures to manage risk against these critical functions using a public-private partnership model that we've established. So, you know, a lot of our work is trying to focus on what we can do to ensure functionality against cyber attacks, be prepared, manage vulnerabilities, all of that. But then it crosses over to things happen, even against our best efforts to keep things secure. And how, how do we minimize the impact, help recover of the impact of things. We actually established an emergency support function, ESF 14, that CISA and FEMA co-lead, which is thinking about business and infrastructure and supply chain impacts from disaster and putting a focus on restoration and bringing industry to the table to get infrastructure and supply chains back up and running because that's crucial to life-saving and life-sustaining functions. Could, uh, could you speak to uh, the ESF structure generally, how it is the EF structure exists and, and, and what its functionality is. I don't know whether that's you or Susan or both of you. Um, I can start, Susan, and if you want to uh, augment. The National Response Framework lays out 15 emergency support functions. ESF2 is communications. ESF8 is public health. You, you know, ESF12, get energy up and running. ESF13, law enforcement. So it is the way that the interagency structures to support under the orchestration of the FEMA administrator and then down to the state level. I'll, I'll pivot over to Susan to see what else she wants to do with ESF. I think I want to talk a little bit about this is a good segue to say that it's the Stafford Act that provides the basis for the national response framework and talk a little bit about the fundamental laws in this area. Certainly the Stafford Act uh, is one, the Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Act, which authorizes the president to declare a major disaster emergency and provides him the, the primary substantive authority and emergency funding to respond to disasters. There's also the National Emergencies Act, which provides the president with the authority to waive certain provisions of law in the circumstances of an emergency. So, Lisa, I have a question here from Bill Banks. Tell us a little bit about the circumstances and decision-making process that go into a, a decision by Delaware to request federal assistance. And how, how does that process work? And what are the factors that go into that decision-making process? Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And I think that it really depends on what the incident is. Susan talked about the Stafford Act. That's a really important um, thing that Delaware looks to for assistance of the federal government to the state with respect to securing the resources that we need, making sure what Bob was talking about, resources, um, our supply chains are working efficiently so that we can respond. And because resources are so important, the contracting rules under FEMA to you know, secure contracts with public or private partners are really important. When we determine that those resources that are needed 
to respond to an incident in Delaware are not available at the state or local level, we get together at DEMA with our governor and determine whether or not an executive order or an emergency order needs to be made. So Susan, both Bob and Lisa are in government. You used to be in government, but now you're not. You're you're my private sector uh, voice here. How does the government succeed in getting the private sector to trust its emergency response? We all know that the private sector actually doesn't start out with a lot of trust embedded into its relationship with the federal and state governments. It's more adversarial in nature. How does the private sector join into this trust building methodology? I have to say I'm really a neophyte in the private sector, and um, my heart is still largely in, in public service and public policy. However, I think I came to this position because the role of the private sector vis-a-vis security, and perhaps we should say security and resilience, is an evolving one. It's really been evolving for some time, but let's take the role of Verizon after the 9-11 incident or the role of Walmart and Katrina, you had major, the recognition, I think, suddenly that the private sector supplies our critical infrastructure, makes our our supply chains work, something we're relearning now in the vaccine context, and um, that our public utilities, our healthcare services, our food and fuel deliveries are just an essential part of what security means in the 21st century. And so we're having to figure this out. And I would say there's a entire wide spectrum of attitudes that are really in the process of evolution. Larger utilities and companies want to be left alone to take care of of things and believe that and are utterly confident that they can. They often find that have the perspective that their overall performance is good and that fines and complaints from agencies and the public about rapid recovery are by and large unwarranted. Generally speaking, the idea of resilience, although there is a national infrastructure protection plan, is in its infancy and we don't have clear definitions. So Bob, keeping now with the um, theme of practicality, How did the structures and laws that we've just talked about play out in the context of the solar winds crisis? Because you wanted to pivot to cyber a bit, I agree. So, you know, I think it's important to note, right, that the the first moment solar winds, I'll talk about from an incident response perspective, right? The first moment it it hits the wide-scale attention of the U.S. government and others is through reporting from a private entity, CrowdStrike. You know, it's an example where in this case, a private entity had more visibility in what's going on than, than anything that we had seen on our own networks or that were collected through in classic intelligence. And, and it just points to the importance of information sharing with private companies. You know, there, there were two elements from, from the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency from the government's perspective. One is we are in victim status. First order consideration is getting the U.S. government together to, to work. And, and here, CISA, you know, my office really trying to drive making available incident response capability, sharing information to help us mitigate the impacts of the breach on our own systems to understand that. As we did that, we recognized as a federal government that we needed to stand up a unified coordination group, which is a concept from emergency management doctrine. And so we had a cyber incident response plan, we had a structure, and that's where the interagency comes together with select private entities 
start to work through a coordinated response. You, you know, the, the good news to the extent there is any here is right, the theoretical problem has not yet been realized at the scale that a theoretical problem with depth, you know, 18,000 companies downloaded the version of, of, of SolarWinds Orion software that had bad code. But, but we, we have to figure that out. And, and so a lot of this is putting things together to gather information to understand as we go into <laughs> systems, as we talk to private firms who are also doing incident remediation, incident mitigation, we're finding out more things, we're getting advisories out, and, and through that, we, we put together sort of a, a, you know, a fairly robust coordination structure. It's really interesting. I mean, just as an observation, it strikes me that cyber responses like this are in a lot of ways different from responses in the physical world. And pivoting to you, Susan, uh, I have a question from uh, Harvey Rishikoff. Harvey, for those who don't know, is the chair of the advisory committee. And he asked, what are the key policy or legal issues that need change or emphasis or reform? gray areas of law that lawyers are going to be engaged with in every one of these crises that they need to be aware of in which their advice will be critical and their understanding will be uh, impactful. Well, I, I definitely want to go back to the question of who's in charge. I think that's always going to be very salient and important. Um, we've been talking about crisis uh, preparedness and response but what is preparedness and how far back does it go? Is it preparedness that simply prepares you to be able to respond in the event? Or is it preparing you to suffer such events and have a more resilient system? Another one that I've mentioned and that I think is going to be a place of very active lawyering is the question of resilience. Is there going to, to what extent there will be federal regulation let's say over um, electricity distribution, which is currently handled by the states, taking over from the states in some manner, where there's gonna be no federal involvement at all other than for the federal government itself, or is there gonna be more emphasis on providing risk information, threat information to state and local and private critical infrastructure owners all of that constitutes a gray area across uh, many of the critical infrastructure sectors and is already providing a lot of work for lawyers. Okay, well, that's good. Uh, let me stick with kind of one of those topics that you mentioned and, and, and come to you, Lisa, and ask you this. In the preparation for our, our discussion, you, you were talking about some of the challenges that Delaware had in information sharing and public-private partnerships and the legal changes that were necessary to actually make that more practical. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so most of us might find that public-private partnerships are often considered more nimble um, and sometimes less costly than, than government can be, but they raise a lot of questions, at least here for you know, the states, about you know, what, what do they need to comply with? And on the state level, you know, we need, we have a lot of complexity around compliance. You know, are they subject to FOIA, for example? Do they need to respond to Freedom of Information Act requests? Are they subject to um, the procurement rules? And so, you know, the legal questions sort of run to that. What is the, the legal entity? How is it governed? What is the compliance? What's going to be the level of compliance? One of the things Susan mentioned earlier was adding private companies like Walmart to our um, emergency plans. Delaware does not have that. And, and DEMA does not, you know, we have more uh, vendor relationships, contractual relationships than we do public-private partnerships. But I think it's North Carolina, if I'm not incorrect, that 
has a relationship with Walmart in that, you know, for logistics, they utilize Walmart as part of their response team. That has brought them great success. Um, And I know it's something that, you know, we're looking at to say, are there private partners that we need to bring on in more public-private partnerships? So, Bob, kind of same question for you. From your perspective, what needs reform or change? It could be policy or law at the federal level. Sure. I'll hit on some of the, I think some of the, the same themes. I call it co-solutioning. I, I go further than public-private partnership, you know, being able to work together and make joint investments. The closer we get to actually trying to do that, the more the lawyers get involved and the more the legal questions get get a, get a little more hairy about doing that. And I don't think that that we've got the right legal framework to get as far as we need to go at the federal level for for public-private partnerships. So we'll we'll keep pushing it in that area. You know, more ability to share information on supply chain risks and more encouragement of taking advantage of the insight that the private sector is getting from their own systems of of risk that doesn't always get to the federal government. Um, That's more than just cyber indicator sharing. You know, on the resilience side, a lot of what we do to encourage security and resilience from private entities is based on old laws um, that were not designed for resilience, but but we're trying to sort of tamp those things on. But you know, updating some of the 20th century foundational laws on, on how and what is expected of private entities to deliver essential things such as communications networks, I, I think is a, a, another area for a rich policy discussion. Susan, I see you nodding your head about regulation. Right. I, I just want to comment uh, that I really appreciate as an entrepreneur, the co-solutioning aspect of this. And I think one of the stumbling blocks has been IP rights and um, the ability of companies to innovate um, without losing their IP if they have a conversation with the federal government. But I did wanna say something positive about regulation that has been achieved and it provides uh, utilities, healthcare services and food and fuel deliveries to emergency sites when the roads are shut down. And um, it sounds obvious that you'd want your pharmaceutical, um, you know, transport to get in, but it wasn't obvious. It took it took almost a decade to build those things into law, and have it, you know, replicated around the country. I think some of the times this this public private partnership or co solutioning is a process, and it has to be embodied in statutes and. There's also regulatory flexibility. So in crises, and I think one of the most important ones we're seeing play out today for supply chains, and that is that the most important thing for supply chains or one of the most important set of regulations is the restrictions on truck drivers, how many hours they can drive and uh, how much um, the trucks can weigh. Once a disaster is, is announced, often um, these regulations are waived very early on in the crisis recognizing a change in the risk benefit and the risk benefit calculus in that setting. So I think there is a lot more sophistication about how regulation can work to to benefit in these situations. With that, we've reached the end of our 90 minutes. I want to uh, thank the panelists, Lisa, Bob, and Susan, for a really great and interesting discussion. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.